HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good afternoon, and welcome back to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we'll be talking all about the need to shift the current food system model, lessons we can learn from other sectors, like the energy sector, already engaged in modernizing their systems, and how institutional food procurement is one of the most effective intervention points to do so. Joining us on the line today to talk all about this is Paula Daniels. Paula is co-founder and chair of the Center for Good Food Purchasing, a social enterprise nonprofit founded in July of 2015 as a national spinoff from the Los Angeles Food Policy Council, which she founded in 2011. She's a public policy leader in environmental food and water policy and is currently serving as an appointee of Governor Brown to the California Water Commission. Paula, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, actually, welcome back to the show. This is your second time <laughs> joining us. Uh, that's right. You're an I old pro. A while ago. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. so diving right in, um, I want to kind of set the stage for this discussion and the need to change the way food is, is pr- produced in the U.S. Um, so can you lay out in super broad strokes like what the food system in the, in the states currently looks like in terms of agricultural production and how we got here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, you know, there's a, um, I don't want to just talk about food production in terms of what we need to change. There's certain methods, I think, that all of us agree maybe have more of an impact on the environment. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, I think the thing to, for us to think about is how we distribute the food that we have and where it's grown and the variety of food that it's grown, right? So mm-hmm. I think, I think that's what you were getting at in your question, too. Um, and there's this, 
a couple of things here. One is there's kind of a a myth of hunger. I mean, there definitely are people who are hung, hungry. There definitely are lots of um, communities that have limited access to food. But we are producing more food than we ever have before. We're producing more calories per person than we ever have before. When you look at things in a global context, the question is how it's distributed and how it's um, put into the final product that comes to people. So the, the real question for me has been, you know, as I've been looking at this, is how we produce more healthy food that has lower impact on the environment um, and that also has is distributed equitably so that it's affordable and available to all communities, regardless of their income level. So how we got to this place of, you know, where we've got so much food and so many calories, but we're also creating this problem of limited access. And in cases where there's limited access, this, the conjoined issue of diabetes and obesity, obesity <laughs> it's a word, so where people are using diabetes. Um, <laughs> Just combine those terms. <laughs> and obesity, which are really unfortunate things that seem to be happening at the same time in certain communities, is because their access to food is relegated to the food that's cheap. Right. The cheap food is the food that's hyper-efficiently produced. And that came out of a mid-century, mid-20th century ethos of globalization and industrialization. It was the way the world was at the time. People were looking at um, post-war, using industrial and engineering prowess. It was the way everybody was thinking. And they applied that. That was applied for our food system as well. And this so, is... Oh, sorry. Go on. No, it's okay. Uh, so it was applied to our food system as well. And, and a number of the um, international trade policies and the economic policies, the, um, uh, the, the the subsidy through farm bills all went into hyper-efficient production, like moving toward industrialization, and um, particularly in the areas of the grains that we know are highly commoditized. So, so in your... There's one other thing yeah. I want to point out that happened, and that is that we granted... As a country, we granted um, intellectual property uh, patent rights to um, biological tissues that allowed for, that became the basis for genetic modification, and that lends itself to um, efficient production as well. Okay, the the hyper efficient production that you that you talk about. So, um, yeah, in your in speaking of in your uh, article that you recently published titled "Designing a Renewable Food System," you write that other sectors such as energy, water, transportation, um, which originally fell in line with the kind of get big or get out ethos, um, have begun a shift to sort of modernize. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so what are the modernizations that these sectors are making um, and that you argue food should adapt, and how are they better? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I uh, you mentioned that I was on the Water Commission. I did actually just cycle off of it, but um, I, I've been in water policy for quite some time. I've been involved in uh, issues related to water quality and water supply um, for decades and have been watching how that system, which is very large scale, particularly our system in California, which depends on this huge central plumbing system of the State Water Project, mm-hmm. um, how, how it's been shifting in modern times to incorporate some more traditional practices that are regional. So we've in California, we've d- adopted this 
view of supporting the development of a local water supply, which is um, a diversified array of water um, production and conservation. So that includes stormwater capture, recycled water, uh, groundwater use and cleanup, um, all of those um, those sorts of things that lead to a, a water supply that's more diverse and more regionally appropriate rather than importing water from pretty far away, which is what our system is in California. Knowing that that was happening in um, a very complex system, they, you know, gave me a sense of a pattern that I'm, I started seeing when I've looked at other things like even transportation, mm-hmm. uh, which had been dependent on very large highway systems moving people around. And again, in California, you know, we've been quite dependent on the automobile, but we're moving toward more multimodal ways of transportation. I think you're doing that in New York, too, where you have more bike lanes. Um, you have more layers. You're, you're better at it in New York than we are in California. We're trying to get better at it in L.A. But you have layered ways of moving people around in the city. And then I started looking at the energy system, and you look at how there was um, this dependence on fossil fuels in the mid uh, mid 20th century, but then now um, most places have a renewable energy portfolio that has a diverse array of energy, including you know solar, wind, geothermal, whatever works for their region. M- most so, cities or um, most regions? Yeah, it's, it's a regionally, Both. it's a regional array. Okay. Um, so it seems to me that there's this 21st century. Um, design, you know, system design that's coming forward, moving from the 20th century system design that was very, you know, centralized in terms of its focus, and there's a 21st century design that's more of an all-of-the-above strategy, but also regionally appropriate. And And in some... Sorry, go ahead. Is this what you mean by a decentralized system? Yeah. Decentralized meaning, uh, centralized meaning, means dependent on a singular structure. So actually, you have you have the great musical Hamilton in New York City, which mm-hmm. I haven't seen yet. But it's there's amazing. a debate there between Hamilton and Jefferson. Right. And Hamilton was a believer in a centralized, powerful system. Jefferson was a believer in a more smallholder, diverse system. Um, so that's. Uh, there's a, this constant tension, and there has been this tension since the founding of our country. And in other countries, I think this happens as well, where you look at, um, do you put um, all your resources and thinking into having, you know, all the all the production in a singular type of system, or do you distribute it? And, and what's happened in the food system is, over time, there's been quite a bit of consolidation. There's just a few large entities that produce most of our food. So... If you look at more decentralized, you create an opportunity for uh, smaller farms. And I don't mean micro or tiny farms. I mean smaller than, say, 1,000 acres, like, say, you know, 500 to 1,000 acres or whatever's significant for a region. Mm-hmm. That those smaller farms, almost like small businesses or mid-scale, would have more of an opportunity to contribute in a robust way to the food system. And do these more mid-sized farms also uh, grow a more diversified uh, product portfolio? So are, are you going to see, like, more fruits and vegetables, uh-huh. for instance, on the smaller-scale farm uh-huh. versus a larger uh, – lar- versus, like, uh-huh. larger, yeah, farms? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question, yeah. 
that is um, exactly what, what most scholars and, and those, you know, in the agricultural system have looked at it, um, tend to observe that the smaller scale, and again, I, I don't mean the five acre or so forth farm, no, those yeah. can do that as well, but the smaller scale does tend to be more diversified, does tend to be more um, linked into their regional community. Um, they do tend to be more responsive and more nimble and able to meet um, the needs of the region if that's what's put in front of them. Whereas the larger scale systems are locked in to a production model and to a global supply chain and contract contractual model, basically, that you know moves them toward wanting to have these hyper efficiencies of scale. But efficiency comes at a cost to other things. And what are some to, of those costs? Yeah, well, to be cheap uh, and to have scale, um, that usually depends on cheap labor, for one. It also, and, and that in many instances, translates into very low wages. And, 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 and uh, sometimes, and there's been cases of this in this country, uh, even slave, slave conditions, which have, was in the case in Florida with tomato production until that was um, addressed. Um, the other thing is the impact of the environment. When you're hyper-efficient and hyper-extractive, um, it's, it's a one-way system. It's just taking out from the land. It's just putting in what's needed to grow and then taking it out, but it doesn't restore the soil. It doesn't restore biodiversity and so forth necessarily. So that's, um, you know, I think the large systems could maybe figure out a way to incorporate diversity as well, but it tends to happen more with the smaller system. But we also have the reality of the number of people in farming that has been diminishing over time. So getting more people back into farm production, again, a Jeffersonian ideal, but something that you know many people are looking at it would think would be valuable, would also be strong from an economic standpoint and would benefit the regions economically. Um, because you have, when the people in a region are producing food that's consumed in a region, you also have the multiplier effect of the the radiation of, you know, those people living there, producing there, buying there, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, employing other people there. So it's, it creates more uh, robustness in the economic right. system around that. Which I think, and a lot of people well. don't realize that of something like 50% um, of our fruits and vegetables in this country are actually imported. So it kind of... Yeah, so much food's imported. Um, 50, I think California produces half of the nation's fruits and vegetables. Right. So also region, California, yeah. California really exports quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and some of the, you know, the smaller farmers that I've talked to you about that I've visited here in our Central Valley area of California, which is really quite... I mean, we're actually, by dollar volume, we're the biggest agricultural state in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, most of their uh, produce is shipped overseas. Wow. It's just the way the market is set up. And I think if, if market opportunities were provided to them to ship to uh, Los Angeles, they'd take it. They're business people. They're just going, you know, they're just, there's just in this stream of how the system already works. Um, okay. So I want to, um, shift gears a little bit and this is this is like a little bit out of left field but it's something that i 
Um, okay. I wonder quite a bit and um, would love your opinion on. So it seemed to me in my in my work uh, in the food sector for some time that like the Amer- the average American um, really overlooks like the food system and kind of takes for granted and doesn't give much thought to it. Um, I wonder your opinion on why this is and how we can kind of get people to consider the need to improve the food system a little bit. I mean, a lot. Uh-huh. But. Yeah. Yeah. You know. I think that I definitely think it's changing, and I, I, I mean, I'm really grateful for all the amazing journalists who brought attention to this mm-hmm. um, issue. But um, you're absolutely right; it was something that many people had been detached from. And I found this in water because I, I, I meant, oh, yep. <laughs> hello. I think you might have dropped. Aaron? Was that a phone drop? I did. I dropped my phone. <laughs> <laughs> I was gesticulating, and I. <laughs> My rip my earbuds. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, okay, that's great. Back to the question. So I found I found this to be the case in the in water when I worked in the water water area for a long time. People didn't think about where your water came from. They just you Used could it. ask students where did your water come from, and they'd say from the tap. Oh my gosh! Right? Yeah. And the same is true for food. It's you true. could ask a student, a young person, where do tomatoes come from, and they say from the store. Grocery store. You know, because. Yeah. That's their only interaction with the system. So, um, and part of it, you know, may start in school, but I think also uh, with food, water is a different equation. You sort of have to explain it to people because it really is quite a plumbed system. But with food, I think people um, are beginning to, to get the picture. But also, I think this is where urban agriculture comes into play when you start um, having the opportunity for people to either grow food or seafood grown in their cities, um, they get more of a sense of what it takes to produce food. And then I think the the USDA under um, Vilsack and Kathleen Merrigan did an amazing job at letting people, um, you know, promoting Know Your Farmer um, efforts. So understanding who the farming farmers are. Connecting urban-rural communities. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think there's, there's lots more work to be done. I think um, there's been a lot of good education in that area. I think it could be part of the curriculum more than it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, there, there's there's a lot that's been done, but a lot more that could be. Um, okay, so now I'm going to um, shift and, and I want to talk a little bit about some of the solutions to the mirrored problems of the food system, which um, I feel like we just you did a great job just outlining <laughs> things that you could, uh, you know, write volumes on. Um, so well done us. <laughs> um, okay. So, <laughs> so, yeah, so I want to talk about, um, you know, a lot of your work, uh, it focuses on the importance of promoting institutional procurement as a way to, as a way to modernize the food system and to encourage mm-hmm. this decentralized approach. Uh, for all of the non-policy wonks out there, what does this mean? Um, and, you know, why procurement specifically? Why is it an effective intervention point? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just to break it down even further, procurement basically just is a bureaucratic word for purchasing. Yeah. Like uh, how you're buying things. And I think we all know how much uh, it matters, like how you spend your own dollars. If you, When you think about it, your dollar is like a vote. Mm-hmm. And when you Especially use now. your dollar to buy something, it's like you're voting for more of that thing. And when you use your dollar to buy a certain kind of food, you're voting for the food system you want. I started buying organic back in the 1990s when the organic first started becoming available because I cared a lot about 
the use of pesticides on farms. I wasn't personally as worried about um, the health impacts, but I was, you know, on the, the food itself. But I was very concerned about um, use of pesticide on a widespread basis. So I, even though it was more expensive, mm-hmm. I bought organic because for me that was a vote. I was saying, yeah, I want more of that in the world. And so when you think about how that could work on a larger scale, you have a lot of, you know, combined dollars that can make a big vote for how our food system could be. And so institutional procurement, uh, meaning, you know, governments, um, big institutions who have lots of food dollars to spend, big food service providers like school districts where we work, mm-hmm. um, can, can have a big say in how the food system works in their region. This is also recognized by the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, one of their special rapporteurs on the right to food, excuse me, wrote a report, you know, um, emphasizing what she had seen in terms of these efforts and and, uh, reporting back to the United Nations that this is a really effective way for governments to have influence on the food system, to express their values Mm -hmm. um, through their procurement dollars. And... You know, an example of this, we've talked about supporting smallholder farms. It's only one of many values you could express with your food dollars. But in Brazil, they um, wanted to support smallholder farms, and there's a a national requirement in Brazil that school districts um, get 30% of their food bought through smallholder farms. And as a result of that, that's really created a, a strong economic uh, relationship with the smallholder farms, and they've um, managed to keep a lot of those farmers in business through that policy. That's one example. Okay, and we're going to talk um, more about that uh, in just a minute, but we have to take a quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors. Um, but when we get back, we'll we'll talk more about what institutions should prioritize in terms of their purchasing practices and what organizations are um, currently exist to help accomplish these goals. Stay tuned. Okay. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Quality, 
And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Paula Daniels from the Center for Good Food Purchasing about the wonderful world of institutional food procurement. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so speaking of, um, you co-founded the Center for Good Food Purchasing in in 2015. Um, Tell us Uh about the work you're doing at the center and how you're supporting uh, school districts, which we talked about before the break, um, in doing this work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the Center for Good Food Purchasing is actually a spinoff from the Los Angeles Food Policy Council, which I founded in in um, 2011. That's actually when it started. Um, and we had a program there that we have now spun off from the LA Food Policy Council and put into the center because after it was adopted by LA Unified School District and the city of LA, it, it got a lot of interest from other cities around the country. So we spun it off. And the program is focused on using um, certain key values and embedding it into a metric-based set of guidelines for school districts. It actually works like LEED certification, if you're familiar with that. Do you know about that? It's L-E-E-D. Yeah, why don't you you just give us a brief overview of... Yeah. So L-E-E-D, oh gosh, it's such a well-known acronym, but I think it stands lead. for Leadership yeah. <laughs> Energy Efficient Design, something like that. And it's a, a way for buildings, I think many people may have seen that the building lead mm-hmm. uh, certified, lead gold, lead platinum. It's a way for buildings to be designed that meet certain energy efficiency goals and criteria. And it also includes building materials. It could be water use. But the um, architects and the engineers who design the building have this set of guidelines, and they can design the building how they want, but within those guidelines and hit certain points and metrics. So, um, but they get to choose. You know, mm-hmm. so it's not completely prescriptive. It's a flexible guideline, but it has clear metrics. So our good food purchasing program is the same, and we focus on the five categories of local economies, which we talked about, meaning the the local farming economy, Mm -hmm. um, sustainable food production practices, fair labor practices, animal welfare, and health and nutrition. And they're all equally valued in this um, procurement program. And you have uh, an entry-level point, 15% of purchases must meet um, certain of the criteria that we set out. And the- In all five categories? Sorry, in all five categories? Yeah, in okay. all five categories, and they have to hit. That's for baseline, and then in order to get more points, and then a, a star rating from zero to uh, from one to five stars, um, they can do more in each of the categories um, if they want. So, in examples with local food, um, if they buy within the state, that would qualify as baseline. Um, to get more points, they buy in a closer region. Right, uh, 200 miles. To get mm-hmm. more points, they incorporate a percentage from mid-sized or smaller farms. They can get extra points for working with even smaller farms if they want. But um, So that's an example. In one of the categories? In, in just one of the categories. And each of the categories has a similar array of baseline, which is a an entry point that sort of meets most institutions where they are now. But if they want to go further, they can ratchet it up. And, but it also sets a target that's valuable. So an example of how it worked in LA Unified School District is they hadn't been thinking about any of these 
criteria. They were basically buying food and serving it. Of course, sorry, I have to take that back. They were thinking <laughs> about nutrition. Right. They were thinking about nutrition, but they weren't thinking about local economy. So with our guidelines, once they adopted it, they went from less than 10% local purchasing, which was sort of a, you know, a coincidence. But with the intention of our guidelines, they went to an average of 60% local purchasing. Wow. And then they in a year, yeah. And then it's just a matter of setting your mind to it, right, and making it happen Yeah. Uh, in some ways. And then they also started increasing the uh, percent of um, – they started – the vendors started shifting – the wheat that they use for the bread products mm-hmm. to sustainably sustainably sourced and local, and this this created 150 new jobs um, just in a year. Which is um, is wheat uh, one of the USDA commodities? It it is one of the USDA commodities. Yeah, and so that could have a, a potentially a bigger impact on, um, you know, the, the the majority of the food that is produced in this country. Well, I mean, what it shows, it it creates commercial viability for those um, farmers that are producing different types of grain. And that's what's really important. And what are... Oh, yeah. Sorry. Go on. Oh, go ahead. Um, What are... I'm just curious because labor is something that we... I don't hear a lot about in terms of uh, procurement. So what is an example of a labor standard um, that a school district looks to meet? Uh-huh. Well, so the baseline for labor is um, that all, all, all those in the supply chain for the, you know, the particular product that's under examination for this category um, comply with labor laws, which um, it seems like an easy entry point. It yeah. was, you know, it, but it's surprising how many violations do take place. Yeah. So that's the that's the entry point. So we part of what we do is we it's a big part of the program is that when the school district signs on to this, they also agree that they're going to give us their purchasing data and it goes down to the farm level wow. and the supply chain. So we take that information and we um, our our team um, analyzes it and cross checks it against other databases that are available from. Um, Public sources generally. There's mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of information out there that's collected by uh, government, and there's other databases. And then we we cross check and we, so we look at labor violations, for example, um, and analyze it for whether or not there's enough frequency and severity to um, to bring it to the attention of the school district. Um, okay, so as you're well aware, being in this field, cost is always an issue, right? Especially when it comes to school meal programs. Do these these two commitments cost school districts more money? And if they do, how are these districts expect, expected to accomplish these goals given the very real budgetary restrictions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. Because uh, school districts only have um, well, the reimbursable amount for school districts from the federal government through the school nutrition program that's run by the USDA is something like $2.70 a meal. It's not very much. No. Um, if the school district wants to put more money into it, they can. But um, in Los Angeles, just about everybody's on the free and reduced meal program in our L.A. Unified School District. Mm-hmm. So you've got 750,000 students being fed at $2.70 a meal. So it's incredible. Um, they tended to be pretty, wanting to be pretty efficient. But yeah. the thing that's really um, helpful here is that most 
public procurement, meaning purchasing, is done through an RFP process, meaning request for proposal. In other words, they create their criteria for how they want this contract to work, and they put it out to bid. And generally, the bid is, uh, um, you know, by law in most places, goes to the lowest responsive, responsible bidder. Mm -hmm. So the bid comes back with, they say how, they say how much they can spend. So the school district says, there's so much we can spend, but then once they've adopted our policy, they also say, and our program, they say, and show us that you can, you know, provide this service at this cost, but also that you're going to follow these guidelines. And they, we've um, had it so that the Good Food Purchasing Program is embedded in their um, RFP as it goes out to the vendor. So then the vendors know up front, this is what we need to do. And um, they bid accordingly. And so far, the bidders have been able to do it. Um, I am curious about uh, the actual monitoring, which we touched on earlier, of these kinds mm -hmm. of commitments. So, you know, it's it's one thing to kind of create the structure um, and get people mm -hmm. to sign on the commitments and then implementation and con continued implementation and kind of quality assurance oversight is a, a whole other big, huge piece of the puzzle. So how can, you know, you at a, at a center oversee all of these different commitments and what are some of the things you do to do so? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thanks for asking that. We have a, an ecosystem is what we call it of partners around the country. And for us to be engaged in a city, we look at a number of criteria, uh, among which is there a good you know, kind of a, a set of relationships around this issue that's going to help maintain um, its implementation and maintain its viability, maintain, you know, all the set of relationships that need to make it work on the ground. So we have a structure where we have a local partner. We have a local liaison. In L.A., um, the L.A. Food Policy Council serves as that. Um, in Chicago, we've been working with a number of um, people excuse me, um, people as well as entities, uh, nonprofit organizations, but Food Chain Workers Alliance is among them. Um, in San Francisco, we had a, a partnership with uh, quite a few people there, um, people meaning people as part of organizations to help th move things forward so that San Francisco and Oakland um, were able to adopt it. So we have this sort of network mm -hmm. of uh, partners around the country that are working with us um, with the on-the-ground commitments. And I, you know, I, I want to actually also give a plug to you know the, the school districts who are currently doing this work. So could you tell us those um, districts that have, that have already signed on to this, to these commitments? Uh -huh. Yeah. So the first was LA Unified School District, which is big. They have a $150 million um, huge. school bu uh, yeah, food budget, and they're, they're one of the top six school Annually. districts in the country. Yeah. Second next to New York. Mm -hmm. Yeah, annually. Second biggest next to New York. Um, so Austin, Texas has been um, very engaged in looking at this, and that we attribute to a really forward-thinking and creative uh, food service director um, who's been, you know, championing this. Um, we've um, had some interest from Baltimore. Um, we had it adopted in... Sorry, it's LAUSD, San Francisco adopted it last summer, Oakland adopted it in the fall. Um, Austin is looking very closely at it. Um, the conversations are going forward in Chicago, 
and we have um, a number of other places around the country that are looking yeah. at it as well. So Washington D.C. Yeah. We've had inquiries from the uh, Twin Cities, um, St. Louis calls. Wow. Um, so, so, so I mean, spreading quite quickly, uh, given when you officially launched. It sounds like. Yeah. Um, well, it was adopted by LAUSD in 2012, and okay. um, that, that does seem fast, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's a big step change, um, especially if you consider all of the other categories apart from health and nutrition. Um, so what is the long-term vision, the mid and long-term vision for the center? Is, is the goal eventually to expand adoption within other institutions um, that purchase food? And then, mm-hmm. and then also, like, what are your goals for eventually federal-level adoption? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so our plans are to continue to expand to have a number of cities enrolled in this, uh, by cities, I mean the school districts within those cities, school districts are what we've targeted. And we've been focused on K through 12 because we know there's also the real food challenge that's been doing work at the university level and they're partners of ours. Um, and then Healthcare Without Harm has been doing work in hospitals. So we're in conversations, we have an alliance with um, those groups to, to uh, combine and, and look at common issues and procurement in these regions, particularly if we can combine around cities. So long term, um, it would be uh, our, our goal is to have the cities, the municipalities, the regions that are adopting this to be networked together so that they can share best practices and then also to help uh, develop some distribution type systems within each of the regions so that they, they have uh, an easy flow mm-hmm. uh, between the local sourcing and the type of sourcing they want, um, they're able to get it in, in a more continuous um, and clear way. It starts developing those supply chains, and we want to be able to help with doing that. And then on the federal level, I think the a, a goal would be to have more support for those school districts that are adopting programs like the Good Food Purchasing Program or, you know, the others, whichever an area adopts, but that would that show value-based purchasing and that if they could, you know, an idea would be that if there could be extra funding for those um, efforts, that would be, that would be ideal. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Uh, awesome. So for those of you, for those of our, you know, our, for our li- <laughs> <laughs> for, <laughs> for everybody um, out there. Yeah, for everybody out there. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, for everyone out there who is like now completely sold on the on uh, the need to improve the way institutions buy food, what can uh, listeners do to support the center's work, and where can they go to learn more about what you're doing? Oh, love that question. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We have a website, and it has quite a bit of information on it. If, if folks are interested, that'd be a great place to go, goodfoodpurchasing.org. We're pretty literal. Yeah. <laughs> goodfoodpurchasing.org. Straightforward. And, uh, yeah, so, and, and um, we do have an opportunity to donate if people are interested in that. Any amount of support, just the fact of knowing that their support uh, is tremendous. It's something that really... Puts the adds the wind to our sails, so it'd be much appreciated if that was of interest. Absolutely, um, would be a wonderful 
wonderful initiative to support for everybody. So, um, okay, with that, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to wrap it up. But Paula, thank you so much for taking the time to come back on the show today. It was my pleasure. Thank <laughs> you so much for being interested in this. Oh, very. I love love a good procurement conversation. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. So uh, I also want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for your generous support. Our show is produced with help from Taylor Lenzette, and show music is by Tim Archer. Thank you to our engineer, David Tattashore. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.